What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. When you meet someone online, can you trust they are who they say they are? I keep thinking so much about you. She's so stunning. It's all well planned. Love, Janessa is the true crime podcast from the BBC World Service and CBC Podcasts, exploring the world of online romance scams. And it's available now. Find it wherever you found this podcast. Hello and welcome to Business Matters here on the BBC World Service. I'm Rahul Tandon. Plenty coming up on the programme today. Interest rates will the US raise them? We'll be finding out in a few hours' time as Jerome Powell, the chair of the Fed, addresses the US and the world. They're all watching very closely. And we're going to have a little bit of a conversation about this film. Outfitex, a private terror group. If you don't know what that is, that is Patan, a big Bollywood film that ha- it could be on course to becoming the biggest Bollywood film ever. I'm be joined throughout the programme by two guests on opposite sides of the world. From Delhi, we have Shushma Ramachandran, independent business journalist and columnist for the Tribune newspaper. Hello, Shushma. Always a pleasure to speak to you. Have you seen Patan yet? No, I haven't. But looking forward to it, I believe it's uh, very entertaining. Do you know, I, I did see it the other night, actually. Oh, and I, really? I did, and I have to say, I did enjoy it very much. It stars mm-hmm. uh, Shah Rukh Khan, one of the greats yes. of the Indian cinema industry, but it has done very well. We'll be talking about that a little later in the programme. Also joined by Alison Schrager, senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and a contributing editor at City Journal. She joins us from New York. I'll ask you the same question. Why, you know, everybody loves Bollywood, don't they, Alison? Have you seen this film yet? Will you go and see uh, it? Uh, no, no, I don't have access to Bollywood films, but m- maybe I'll, I'll get to find it somewhere. Yeah, please do look out for it. Go to your cinema and tell them to put it on. That is enough of me lobbying for <laughs> Patan to be shown across across the world. But we're going to start with a, a more serious subject because the Biden administration in the U.S. has expressed anger over record annual profits posted by the U.S. oil giant ExxonMobil. The company's net profit for last year was just over 55 billion dollars driven by soaring oil and gas prices caused by the war in Ukraine. Let's hear a bit from that White House statement, which we have voiced up. The latest earnings reports make clear that oil companies have everything they need, including record profits and thousands of unused but approved permits to increase production. But they're instead choosing to plough those profits into padding the pockets of executives and shareholders while House Republicans manufacture excuse after excuse to shield them from any accountability. 
We're going to hear from Dalip Singh, former deputy director of President Biden's National Economic Council in a minute. Alison, I just wanted to bring you in here. Were you shocked at the scale of those profits? No, not really. I mean, oil prices have been really high. And, you know, they're set in the global market. And when oil prices are higher, um, you know, oil companies do make more money. That is very true. And it's not just ExxonMobil. We've had lots of other oil companies across the world doing the same. Let's hear from Dilip Singh now, who's chief global economist at PGIM Fixed Income. I share the concern if more of the money that's being made is not funneled into investment. And I worry greatly that too much of the profits are being directed toward share buybacks. I mean, the reality is we're still in a brutal and reckless war in the middle of Europe and Western governments have taken unprecedented actions to release oil from their strategic reserves and households all over the world are enduring a a shock to their cost of living. So we need more energy production. We need more energy investment. That would be a very good thing for the global economy. More share buybacks, not so much. Well, the US has put in, haven't they, a buyback tax to try and prevent that. But isn't it time for President Biden to put in a windfall tax as we have in the UK, as we have in Europe, as we have in India? Well, I think the most important thing, I mean, beyond the taxation rate on profits is, are we investing enough in renewables to make for a smooth transition away from fossil fuels? Clearly, we're not. Clearly, we're not, are we? Otherwise, these companies wouldn't be earning so much money. That's and that's the root of the problem right now. Renewable production of energy is only about a quarter of the energy produced from fossil fuels. So we're still years away, maybe a decade before renewable production is large enough and reliable enough to fully substitute. Meanwhile, a non-trivial share of fossil fuels are being weaponized. So we have a, a, an imbalance between energy supply and energy demand, and that means the market is clearing at higher prices. The only solution here is to think and act much bigger on financing renewable energy production uh, and to have the private sector do its part uh, to the tune of trillions of dollars. For that, we need leadership. But the problem is, and you will know this from your time advising President Biden on difficult decisions, that as the price of those fossil fuels goes up, as the price of oil goes up, the price of coal has gone up, more and more companies are going to invest in that area because it's making them huge profits. Yeah, and and there's no no tension here between investing more now for energy production during this war – and during this transition, and making sure that we put in place enough investment so that there is, there is a, a more sustainable and cleaner path to energy production years ahead of us. That's, that's not a choice we have to make. We have to do both. In a way, and you know, you were, the, you were one of the key figures in putting those sanctions on Russia and President Putin. They may be losing the war in Ukraine, but are they winning the war when it comes to energy? I don't think so. They've, they've lost Europe and the G7 probably forever as energy consumers. Uh, the only countries that are left for Russia to sell its energy to are China, India, uh, Turkey, and a few smaller countries. But they're buying it in big amounts, aren't they, the Chinese and the Indians? Well, they may be buying it in bigger amounts than they used to, but they're buying it at a lower price. The price cap on oil has given India, China, Turkey, other countries the gift of bargaining power. There's no reason for them to pay a penny more than the price cap that we've put in place. Uh, And they should use, they are using that bargaining power to get massive discounts. That's hitting hitting Putin in his uh, pocketbook, and it's making it more difficult for him to finance this war. If you were still advising President Biden, I'm sure that you still probably talk to him occasionally. 
What would you be telling him to do now when it comes to energy to speed up the transition away from fossil fuels? Well, what I hear from the private sector is they need the public sector to move first, to take the the quote-unquote first loss positions in investments in the developing world where renewable energy production could really ramp up. Places like the Congo, where 70% of the world's cobalt is found, which is an absolutely critical mineral for electric vehicle batteries, we should be there putting in place investments that take the riskiest part of that project on our balance sheet. If we do that, the private sector will follow. And it's also a way for us to offer developing countries a choice between China's Belt and Road Initiative and a Western democratic alternative. That's where we should focus. Shashman Dalip Singh there, the former deputy director of President Biden's National Economic Council. He said there quite unequivocally that he thought that those G7 countries were going to move away from Russia and ever buy their energy again. But does that matter if India and China, you know, the world's two most populated countries are still buying those products? Um, uh, Yes, I don't think it really matters because Russia still has a market. And uh, the fact is, uh, they're still buying Russian natural gas. I mean, gas is still flowing. Uh, I mean, it's not as if uh, the G7 isn't buying even oil. They're still buying oil. And uh, they're still buying oil. They're still buying gas. Uh, Of course, uh, the the quantities have gone up. I think uh, India is now buying about 25% of Mm. its requirements from Russia, as against probably some 2 or 3% about, uh, uh, you know, a year back. So things uh, have changed. And of course, he's right about the discounts, but the discounts were available from Russia uh, even before the price cap was imposed, if you recall. Uh, In fact, that was how Russia induced uh, India to buy uh, its oil because, you know, there is a a large freight element in buying oil from Russia. So um, I think that uh, uh, there's a bit of uh, uh, there's a bit of optimism over there. Uh, Even I mean, even as I said, Europe, uh, though. uh, Initially, the U.S. and Europe were advising India not to buy from Russia. I mean, it was a bit hypocritical because they're still relying on uh, energy supplies from Russia themselves. Listen, Shoshima makes a valid point there. When we look at the energy transition, Dalip said he thought maybe a decade. Could it be longer than that? You know, could we be using fossil fuels for much longer than that? And that transition to a green economy may be slower than we thought it was going to be. I mean, I I think so. I think 10 years sounds really aggressive. I mean, everyone I speak to in energy tells me that, uh, you know, renewables just aren't reliable, uh, you know, in their current form. And it would take, um, you know, a major innovation, particularly without nuclear and I think, I, th- I think, you know, everything he said sort of encapsulates the problem. They complain that fossil fuel companies aren't investing in, you know, new sources. But he's also saying we'd like you to be out of business in 10 years. So why would they have expanded production? That is a good point. Can you both just react to this now? Because we're going to stay on the theme of resources because Pope Francis has mm-hmm. condemned the exploitation of Africa's natural resources by wealthy country. He is at the moment on a visit to the Democratic Republic of Congo, which is one of the world's, when it comes to minerals, most valuable deposits. Uh, this is what he had to say in the DRC. It is a tragedy that these lands, and more generally the whole African continent, continue to endure various forms of exploitation, a thought that comes from the subconscious of many cultures and many people. Africa should be exploited, and this is terrible. 
Now, Shushma, I have to be honest with you. It's not often that we have mm-hmm. the Pope on a business programme, but there he is. <laughs> yes. um, I yes. think that yes. shows you, doesn't it? When we talk about this green transition, that yes. is also not going to be simple because a lot of those resources may be in Africa or Latin America and there's going to be a, a scramble mm-hmm. for them. Yes. Um, well, two things I'd like to say on this. Uh, first of all, uh, I, mean, you know, I would agree with Alison that it's going to take a lot of time. Uh, but at the same time, uh, there's a lot happening, uh, you know, and even the Lip Singh said in developing economies like uh, India, uh, we are moving very fast on renewables. And, um, uh, you know, we recently had an auto show just a few weeks back, and most of the new models were either electric vehicles or hydrogen based vehicles or hybrid vehicles. And uh, that's the way to go, although they, the share of the market right now is slow, but it's really picking up fast because everyone wants to buy Uh, the new technologies. Now, apart from automobiles, there's a lot going on on solar, wind, and other types of renewable uh, energy sources uh, in India. Uh, So that's number one. The other thing I'd like to say is that, you know, uh, Dilip Singh's comment on the Congo, that, you know, let's go in and uh, let's give them a democratic alternative. I'm afraid that uh, that kind of uh, patronizing attitude by Western countries, I mean, um, uh, is a little, it's a little sad. In other words, we are, we are, Uh, I mean, that's what the Pope was talking about, that you're coming in and you're trying to tell them that we have a better system than you and therefore we can exploit your resources better. Certainly, of course, for the Congo and for other countries, foreign investment would be wonderful. But don't bring it in with a kind of ideological uh, overlay. I mean, bring in your money, help them and uh, don't try and uh, take over and exploit the situation. Alison, a lot of people will agree with what the Pope says. But the simple fact is, wealthy nations always need resources and history has taught us that poorer countries are often not in a position to strike the deals that they need when it comes to those resources. I agree. It's sort of patronizing to assume they can't. I mean, in the history of of colonialism, obviously, they weren't in that position. But as I said, if, you know, the Congo's compensated fairly for their resources, you know, um, and, you know... I think it, it's, it's patronizing to assume they, they can't negotiate for themselves, mm. then, you know, th- that is their choice. Shishma, coming back to the point that you made, which I think is an interest, you know, is one that gets to the root of this particular problem, isn't it? Because we have often Western governments going to countries in Africa mm. and saying, this is how you should do things. We'll give you the money, but you need to do mm. this. The Chinese yes. go in and often just give the money, don't they? They, they don't quite put down the same terms that, that maybe Western governments do. Do you think in some ways that's why the Chinese have made so much progress in Africa? Uh, yes, uh, I think that's very true. And even, <coughs> excuse me, even um, uh, India uh, is welcomed in many African countries uh, for not just, of course, uh, for the reason that we just give the money. No, I think India tends to be perhaps a little more aggressive than that. But uh, India <laughs> is uh, welcome because, and China also, because we have been using what they call <clears throat> appropriate technologies. We're not using, uh, you know, very high-end technologies, but we use a, a sort of a middle-level technology that is uh, suitable for a developing economy. So many African countries have welcomed, uh, you know, Indian expertise, Indian technology. And, of course, similarly for the Chinese. The Chinese, of course, have the big bucks. They give this huge amount of money, and uh, they have made really great inroads into Africa as compared. And, and as you rightly say, I think the approach of the Chinese and the Indians, different as it may be, is more welcome to the Africans. 
There we go. We have had the Pope on the programme. It probably isn't the first time, to be honest, uh, to both of you, but we look forward to having him on again in the next few months or so. Now, as Alison will know, the eyes of the world, well, at least the financial world, will be on Jerome Powell on Wednesday. He is the chairman of the Federal Reserve, that is the US Central Bank, and he will announce whether he's raising interest rates later on Wednesday. This is what he said the last time the Fed met to discuss interest rates on December the 14th. Today, the FOMC raised our policy interest rate by a half percentage point. With today's action, we have raised interest rates by four and a quarter percentage points this year. We continue to anticipate that ongoing increases in the target range for the federal funds rate will be appropriate in order to, to attain a stance of monetary policy that is sufficiently restrictive to return inflation to 2% over time. Let's get the thoughts of Susan Schmidt, Head of Public Equities at the State of Wisconsin Investment Board. The market is anticipating a quarter of a percent increase in interest rates overall. And that is meant to be a benefit as it continues to slow. Remember that Chairman Powell gave us 475 basis points, three quarter of a percent interest rate increases right in a row. The one that we had in December was a half a percentage point increase. And the market is expecting that to slow even further down to a quarter percent. I think that we're seeing softening economic data whereas the pace of inflation is coming back. So we've seen that for three months running now. But is that a long enough trend for the Fed to feel comfortable that things are moving in the right direction? That's where investors are still torn and undecided. I think we'll hear more in the commentary and how the Fed is viewing these softening inflation numbers. And certainly we are moving in the right direction. And we've seen a tremendous market in January where things have done very well. It's the best month in the market we've had since October. And in fact, the NASDAQ 100, so the top NASDAQ 100 stocks, which are tech heavy, have rallied the most this past month since July. So we're seeing a lot of optimism from investors as they continue to think this economic data is going to give the Fed reasons to scale back on those interest rate increases. Susan Schmidt there. Now, Alison, if you were talking to Jerome Powell instead of me at the moment, probably far more pleasurable experience, and you were here with him, he's got a few hours to go before he makes his announcement, what would you tell him to do? I'd have him um, increase rates by another maybe quarter point. He's been increasing them by a half a point. Um, and sort of reiterate that he will he will sort of Stay on this course until inflation is back to his target. I mean, I think people are sort of already anticipating that maybe even they'll get rate cuts in the future. But I mean, the employment rate is still like at historic lows. And inflation, you know, I think a big part of it was going to sort of get better as the world became more fully back online and oil prices moderated. But, you know, returning to a 2% target and inflation coming down are two very different things. And I think the Fed still has longer to go. So if I were him, I'd be clear that, you know, he's continuing with rate cuts, maybe slowing a little bit, but he's still very dedicated to this path. Do you have sympathy for Jerome Powell? He was criticised at the beginning for being too slow when it came to raising interest rates. But whenever I speak to different economists in the US, the word that they use to describe the world's largest economy is confusing. It is confusing a little bit, isn't it? I don't really have much sympathy for him. I mean, there's a lot of things about the economy that's confusing right now. I mean, and, but the fact is we have very low unemployment and very high inflation. 
And, you know, it, 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 is his, it is largely his job to deliver, you know, low predictable inflation. So, you know, I think we, you know, the sort of original sort of relationships don't seem to be holding. The economy seems much more resilient. But I think that just shows that he can continue to stay this course because he still hasn't had to sort of contend with a weakening economy or rising unemployment. Is there a fear, do you think, that because he was slow to raise interest rates, we may see the same problem in terms of him slowing down the rate of rise of interest rates, that he may be too cautious again? I mean, I think that's a concern, especially because monetary policy works with substantial lags, and those lags are actually quite uncertain. So, I mean, I think there, there is concern that he's already done enough and we're not going to know for another year. But I think, you know, there's something very important here, and that's the Fed's credibility is really on the line. I mean, a big reason why economists believe we've had such low, stable impl- inflation for so many years is that people really believe the Fed would do what it takes to keep inflation low. And if he loses that credibility, it'll be harder for him to deal with monetary policy in the future. And I think the real risk here is, if people remember the 70s, is that inflation would go down, it would go back up, it would go down and go back up. And honestly, the uncertainty became as damaging as the level. So it's really important, as I said, that I, I, I mean, people seem very concerned that he goes too far. But I think there's also a very large risk he doesn't go far enough. Shushma, um, a strong... U.S. economy and a particularly high interest rates there means that the dollar becomes a lot stronger. It's been interesting with the Indian rupee because many other currencies, if you look across the border of Pakistan at the moment, what's happening there in terms of the dollar and the rupee, the Indian rupee's held up quite well, hasn't it? And maybe a sign, we're going to talk about this a little bit more after the news when we look at the Indian budget, that the Indian economy is doing pretty well at the moment. Yes, of course. I think, uh, you know, even the IMF has just said it's the fastest growing major economy in the world just now. Um, as far as uh, the impact, of course, the, the rupee is uh, uh, holding up pretty well, but last year it had depreciated. There were concerns. and uh, But now um, uh, I think uh, the worry is that uh, as the Fed continues to raise interest rates, uh, you'll have more of foreign institutional investors uh, exiting stock markets over here mm. and going back to the U.S., Uh, But last month in December, you had FIIs coming back to the markets uh, and buying up a lot of stocks. Um, The latest assessment by the Indian government is that, you know, in the uh, medium term, you're going to have the FIIs coming back simply because, you know, inflation is better controlled in India than in the rest of the world. But of course, we have to see what happens. Yeah, when it comes to that foreign investment in India, Mm -hmm. as you said, India had a, a very long lockdown. It did tail off. We've seen what's happened with these rising interest rates in the U.S. Is it beginning to change a little bit, do you think? Um, uh, right now, of course, uh, uh, the situation in India as far as inflation is concerned is really uh, uh, good. Of course, our levels of uh, you know, acceptable inflation are much better, are, are much higher than for the U.S. I mean, the U.S. Fed has uh, 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 you know, pegged a level of 2%. For India, the central bank has pegged 4 to 6%. Uh, so, um, you know, inflation has come down to below 6%. So we are we are in the, the happy position, again, uh, rare among, uh, you know, uh, major economies right now, that uh, the inflation situation is uh, improving rapidly. Mm. So it looks as if, uh, you know, FIIs may start coming back. But as I said, one really has to wait and see. Alison, final thought to you on this one. Give us a, your general impression of the U.S. economy. We talk about a lot of job losses in the tech sector, job losses in other sectors at the moment. Do you fear that that's going to grow over the course of the next few months? 
I mean, I do. I don't see how the Fed could keep raising rates and not having some impact on the labor market. I think we're still in a position where the economy is fairly resilient. <laughs> and even if we have a recession, it won't be that um, that deep. Uh, it could be a mild one. But I mean, there is concern. I mean, one of the reasons the economy has been so resilient is people came out of the pandemic with so many savings and they hadn't spent money in a while. So, I mean, we're seeing evidence that people's savings are starting to sort of be worn down. And if that's the case, then, you know, a recession could be worse. You will hear what's happening or what has happened when it comes to those U.S. interest rates on the 1530 World Business Report program on Wednesday. So do tune in for that. We're going to be talking a lot about the Indian economy, the Indian film industry and wealth taxes in the U.S. That's all coming up after the news. Welcome back to Business Matters here on the BBC World Service. We have Shushma, who is in Delhi in India. We have Alison, who's in New York in the US. We were talking about the Federal Reserve, the state also of the US economy, what's going to happen with its interest rates before the news. It's also a pretty important day for one of the world's fastest growing economies. India will present its last full budget before next year's Elections, that's taking place in a few hours' time. Um, we're going to hear about it in a minute, Shushma, but tell us, what's the sense in India at the moment? What are the big challenges facing the Indian government? Well, I think um, the, uh, the as far as the expectation is concerned, the expectation is that it's going to be a budget that... Uh, really provide some support uh, to everyone it doesn't it's not going to they're not going to levy fresh taxes we have to remember this is a government that is going to face elections in mid 2024 so though there is no expectation that it's going to be a populist budget because that hasn't been the the reputation of this government they are going to try and make sure that uh, this is a this is a budget that doesn't uh, that doesn't hurt anyone as far as taxation is concerned and uh, as far as challenges are concerned uh, the main challenge, uh, of course, is uh, uh, job creation. And uh, the second one is to ensure that the uh, current account deficit doesn't uh, widen too much. That's uh, one of the worries and uh, the slowing down of exports. So as far as uh, job creation is concerned uh, and as far as giving a stimulus to the economy, uh, it's very clear that the government is going to uh, continue with the policies of the last two budgets, which is to push uh, the investments on infrastructure, uh, increase uh, capex. The the capex, you know, uh, capital expenditure mm. has gone up to uh, 2.7% of GDP in to, uh, fiscal 2023, as compared to an average of 1.7% in previous years. So uh, they have really pushed uh, uh, the capex, public sector capex, and. Uh, uh, it's likely to be followed by uh, we are expecting by the private sector. Okay. Uh, now, yeah, we're going to have uh, we're going to have some thoughts from India now. Nikhil Inamda sent this report from the state of West Bengal on the challenges facing the rural poor in India, where the government has a jobs program designed specifically to help them. It took Aditya and Sundara Sadar four months to dig a pond under the government's rural jobs program. We walked through dry paddy fields to see it. It has been more than a year since they were paid for their work. The couple says they are in deep distress and their debts are mounting, Sundara told us. They owe us over $200. 
We are in deep debt. We need to borrow money for everything from food to medicine. Our son has stopped going to school. Many people we met in a tribal village in remote West Bengal haven't been paid for months, caught in a political standoff between the central and state government. The government owes workers roughly $330 million in payments under its Rural Employment Guarantee Program in the state of West Bengal alone, and over 10 million people could be impacted by wage delays of over a year. There's a labour bureau in Shimla which is collecting uh, wage data, but not in a very systematic manner. Jean Drez is India's best-known welfare economist. He told me millions of dollars in payments are delayed in other states too. I think that the government is always trying to contain expenditure. I mean, we have seen that across the social sector. And one way of doing that is to allow this vicious cycle of annual underallocation, then delays in wages, then again inadequate supplementary allocation and mounting wage dues. A big hole in the government's finances has also meant it's been forced to slash expenditure on a crucial COVID-era free food subsidy, which provided five kilos of additional free grain every month to the poorest in the country. Alok Panda depends completely on government food ration and he's feeling the pinch. The additional grain we got during COVID really helped because there was no work for two years. I'm still without a job, so it's very hard to manage. Singing songs of struggle, a street musician at a village market told me people have little money to spare for him these days. The local craft vendors selling trinkets and colourful garments had the same story to tell. These people make up India's vast informal economy and they've been left behind even as the country clocks growth rates higher than most other pockets of the world. And there is the challenge, Shushma. India has progressed incredibly. When I was there, you could see the change happening in front of your eyes. But still, millions of people have very difficult lives. Raising them out of those poverty levels is a huge challenge, isn't it? Yes, yes. Um, uh, the, uh, of course, the clip that you, uh, you know, uh, produced is, of course, uh, uh, you know, very factual, very correct. But I think it has to be remembered that it's in West Bengal. And uh, Jean Drez, of course, is a very respected economist. And uh, he's saying this is happening in many states. But it is very specific to some states mm-hmm. like West Bengal, where there is, as you pointed out in your report, uh, a, a disconnect between the state and the central governments. Uh, the central government uh, normally, these kind of payments are made directly into the bank accounts of the beneficiaries. So there normally isn't delay. I mean, this whole, uh, the success, the huge success, countrywide success of the direct benefit transfer scheme uh, through the digital stack is the great success uh, success story of the Modi government. And it's something that they're selling down to the rest of the world uh, through the G20 that, you know, uh, you, know you can uh, rely on this. And, uh, of course, uh, there are pockets. Obviously, there would be in West Bengal and, you know, uh, where, the state, where the state is not, uh, state's policy are not in line with the central government policy. There's a lot of uh, rift yeah. going on. And that is where uh, people suffer. And that's uh, what you have pointed out very rightly in your uh, report. Alison, uh, yeah, I just want to bring, uh, sorry, yeah. I just want to bring Alison in for a minute here because we've got one more 
interview yeah. to hear on this. Um, one of the challenges that many countries face, Alison, at the moment is trying to create growth to, to help people, you know, in terms of employment, in terms of raising people out of poverty. That, that is something that needs to happen. But with inflationary concerns, that can be tricky as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the exact problem because capital down inflation tends to bring degrowth policies and often growth policies, you know, you want real growth, but, you know, they also do bring inflation. And I think it also has become a problem because inflation also increases interest rates and, you know, it becomes harder for governments to sort of, you know, boost spending as a way of increasing growth. So, I mean, it's going to be a big challenge, especially for emerging market countries. Let's bring in now somebody from the corporate sector in India. Neeraj Kanwa is the managing director of India's largest tyre manufacturing company, Apollo Tyres. He told me what the government's priorities currently are. One is looking at more investments in infrastructure. The other area which the government is looking at is education and healthcare. And I think that is a huge opportunity for India. Also, in 2020, the government had come out with a PLI scheme, which is a production-linked incentive scheme. This was primarily to give boost to make an India slogan and to manufacturing out of India for the rest of the world. And the government had put benefits in auto, IT, and pharmaceutical industries. Some people say some people say that hasn't moved quickly enough. This is a huge moment for India as those supply chains from some countries, they, like the US, they clearly want to move them away from China. Should India be doing better? Yes, we have an opportunity. Obviously, it's a starting point. I think the start has been slow, but there's huge opportunity. And we see that a lot of China production will move into India. One thing that Indians will want from the government is creation of more jobs. That is not easy, though, for the government to do, is it? Like I said, once they do open education, that entire population moving towards an educated, multi-skilled, multi-talented population is what India can offer to the world. Like I've mentioned, manufacturing and the Make in India slogan is really going a long way. There is a lot of FDI, uh, foreign direct investment, that's come into India in uh, brick and mortar. And I see that as a huge opportunity for the job market. Do you think that when we talk about that foreign direct investment into India, it is time for India to open up more? There are many sectors in India which are still closed. Yes, definitely. I still believe the ease of doing business is still very difficult in India. When I compare myself to other parts where we have put up tire plants, let's say, for instance, in Budapest, outside of Budapest. So there is that opportunity that the Indian government must look at of ease of doing business, and that's where FDI will increase. Neeraj Kanwa, the FDI, who's talking about foreign direct investment. Last thoughts, Shushma, for you on this. The the ease of doing business has changed incredibly in India. It's much easier than it was a decade ago, but it needs to change more, doesn't it? Absolutely. I mean, I'm constantly writing in my articles about the need to uh, cut back on red tape. And, uh, you know, one great thing that uh, India has done is to move again towards digitization, which I talked earlier about the you know direct benefit transfer to beneficiaries under rural employment programs. Is similarly in the in the case of ease of doing business that uh, they are moving more and more to digitization. So there is no uh, you know physical interface, 
and uh, that has improved things uh, tremendously. Uh, but of course, there, again, there's a problem at the state government level. You need to uh, you need to improve this at the state government level. So ease of doing business definitely has improved, and it is it's visible in the fact that the amount of foreign investment is uh, you know. Uh, uh, you know, increasing by leaps and bounds in India, despite the fact that uh, the the environment is not certainly as conducive as perhaps Vietnam and Indonesia. So you're still having Apple coming and setting up its plant uh, in India, in Chennai, rather than in any other country. So, and we also have the benefit, of course, of a huge domestic market. That is One thing I just hmm. wanted to clarify, sorry, uh, is that your report mentioned the free fuel grains scheme during COVID. That has actually been continued. The only thing is it's been converted uh, into the, through the public distribution system. And uh, they have uh, they have got rid of the, uh, the separate COVID scheme. But free food grains uh, continue for the people. And that's, uh, that's, by the way, a very important populist measure for the government. Yeah, it definitely is. And uh, it's a measure that seems to have worked if you look at some of the state elections that we've had. Uh, in India yes. over the po- course of the last uh, few months. We're going to go back to the US now and we're going to talk, Alison, about tax because you've been writing or about to write about this and it's an important issue, isn't it? We're going to talk about wealth tax. Firstly, for our listeners, Alison, can you explain what a wealth tax is? Yeah, so a wealth tax is different from an income tax where you actually, say, would tax your sort of net worth, sort of the money you have in the bank rather than the money you're earning. And right now, states are looking at a couple different ways to do it. Um, you can just tax, as I said, like your money in the bank, or you could tax how much your assets earn each year, whether or not you sell them. What are the advantages of a wealth tax? Well, I mean, it's more tax revenue. And, you know, with uh, various entitlement pressures coming on, I mean, state and, you know, various pension issues, states are going to need more revenue. So I think they're looking at as another way to collect revenue. And, you know, there is more inequality and wealth taxes are, I think, seen as a clean way to sort of alleviate inequality. So let's talk about some of the places in the U.S. that may may put this in, you know, with those plans to introduce bills simultaneously. Where are we talking about? Um, We're talking about California um, and Washington are thinking of doing this sort of the wealth tax, the straight wealth tax. And um, California and Illinois, sorry, uh, New York and Illinois, among a couple other states are considering taxing um, the sort of what we call unrealized capital gains, which is how much your assets earn each year, whether or not you sell them. It is a, it's an idea that we've seen discussed in many parts of the world. I suppose one of the problems in the U.S. would be that if only some states were to introduce these taxes, the very wealthy could just pick up and say, hey, you know, as we're seeing many businesses doing at the moment, I don't want to be in California anymore. Maybe I'll go to Texas where they're probably not going to put this in place. Yeah, and where do you see them doing it? I mean, California... Is claiming that if you earn the money in California, they're still going to come after you. I don't know if it's possible. But I think, you know, these taxes are very, very hard to collect because very rich people tend to get rich often by having assets that aren't publicly traded, like often keeping their, like they make their money from their own business or, um, you know, investing in non-marketable assets. So it's really actually quite difficult to assess what people's wealth is in order to collect a tax on it. It is important, Shushma, though, isn't it? India, historically, one of the problems that it's had is, is getting people to pay tax. Not, not enough people in India yes. are paying their taxation. Is that yes. changing? Do you think India could, would look at something like a wealth tax? 
Uh, well, uh, uh, yes, of course, we have a very small tax base and, uh, you know, it really focuses on the salary. Just for our listeners, what, what sort of tax base are we talking about? Uh, uh, I think um, uh, probably uh, just about, uh, uh, probably, uh, you know, I don't have the data <laughs> off my head, but say about 10% of yeah, the population. Yeah, it's very low, isn't it? The majority of people yes, in India are not paying tax. The majority of people are not paying tax. And by the way, it's one of the reasons is that uh, we've kept out a large chunk uh, of uh, uh, of the economy from taxation, and that's agriculture. You know, agriculture is not taxed, so it's not that they're avoiding taxes, and uh, so that's uh, that's one huge area that has been kept out. And the other thing is, of course, the informal sector. But by the way, this is all come in. I mean, my data may be slightly wrong right now because there's a la- uh, large numbers of people who are not paying taxes have now been brought into the tax net. Uh, one, firstly, by uh, the informal, the, by the indirect uh, new tax, the goods and services tax. Uh, small businesses have come into the tax net. And also, uh, there has been a great effort by uh, uh, this, uh, uh, you know, I would say this, not only this government, but the previous government, to try and uh, rope in, uh, uh, you know, bring in more people into the direct tax net uh, as well. So uh, there has been a there has been a widening. Sorry, coming back to wealth tax, we did have a wealth tax uh, right up to 2016-17, but it was felt it wasn't, uh, you know, we're not getting much revenue. So it was removed. And instead, they've imposed a 2% surcharge on the super rich, that is people who earn over uh, rupees uh, 1 crore, I think rupees 10 million annually. So that's there's a small there's a, a su- surcharge on the super rich. Alison, I suppose one of the things, and this is not just something in the US that we're seeing at this moment in time the US had massive amounts of stimulus etc you know we we talk a lot about the debt ceiling there don't we in the US but governments across the world do need to raise more revenue and tax is one of the ways if not the only way they can do it yeah I mean an economist look at different ways we can raise we can raise revenue I mean you can tax wealth you can tax income you can tax consumption and generally, it's considered wealth taxes are the worst of all of these. One, because they're so hard to collect. You know, India is not the only one who has not found it a very effective way to raise revenue. A lot of European countries have also tried and found it wasn't very effective. Generally, the best way to tax is to tax consumption. I mean, that has problems with equity. But, I mean, if you implement it carefully, you can do very progressive consumption taxes. And that's generally considered easier to collect and least distortionary. I suppose a lot of our listeners, Alison, who don't really know the US very well, will be intrigued to, to hear that different states can, can have different policies when it comes to taxation. It's not really a sort of federal system when it comes to things like wealth tax. Is there much debate in the US about changing that? Or because the economies of the states are so different, does, is, is that why that we're seeing this in place? Um, yeah, I mean, in some ways, it's good. I mean, I think uh, the states are sort of who are doing wealth taxes are saying states can act as a laboratory for different tax regimes. And that's true. I mean, I think a lot of people uh, abroad don't realize that when you actually file your taxes in America, you have to file to the federal government and your state. And, you know, some states have no tax income taxes at all. And others like mine have very high ones. And it becomes an incentive to live in different places. So, I mean, it is kind of make the whole system more complicated, but it also gives states more autonomy. You talked about economists, different views, income tax, wealth tax, consumption tax. Which one do you favour? Consumption taxes. There we go. Direct. Best taxes. Yeah. 
direct and to the point. Right, we're going to move away from taxation now and we're going to talk about cinema and we're going to talk about this particular film. Outfit X, a private terror group. Ma'am, we have a red flag. They're planning a massive attack. Or on target, India. That is a trailer for Bollywood's latest hit. Well, maybe one of its only hits recently, to be perfectly honest with you. Patan, the story of an Indian spy that takes on a leader of a group of mercenaries. It was released last week in India. It's already making history. The film had reached the highest grossing figure for a Hindi film on its first day. It's had a pretty storming weekend as well not just in india outside as well i went to see it at a cinema in the north of england it was absolutely packed quite hard to get a ticket for it i had a chat earlier with the film trade analyst Kormal natra about its success it was expected to do very well yes but it has done better than expectations it was supposed to be a hit it seems to be a blockbuster now it, it had controversy prior to its release in a way has that helped it it has helped it in a major way I think a lot of uh, audience is going to watch the film as revenge viewing because people were not very happy with what was happening to the film. They felt that Shah Rukh Khan and the film were being victimized for no reason. A lot of our listeners won't know what the controversy was. Just explain it briefly for us. There's a song in the film, Besharam Song. So loosely translated, it means shameless colour. Now in that song, Deepika Padukone appears in various colours of uh, bikinis and swimming costumes. One of the colors of her costume is saffron. Saffron is considered holy by the Hindus. So some Hindu outfits and some politicians belonging to the ruling party raised objections and they said, this is very anti-Hindu, it hurts Hindu sentiments and therefore this film should be boycotted, should be banned. How important was it for Bollywood that this film did well? Because we're seeing a lot of success from the South Indian film industry at the moment. It was very important and especially this kind of an opening was very, very essential to restore people's confidence in Bollywood films because people have started losing faith, thinking that it's only South content that is working. There are a lot of failures down South also. So this success, this stupendous success has come as a shot in the arm for not just Yashra's films and Shah Rukh Khan, but for Bollywood as a whole. Shushma, that is a good point that Komal makes there, isn't it? Because we've seen this great success of South Indian films and really Bollywood, the Hindi film industry, the largest in the country when it comes to sort of international recognition, has has struggled recently. So an important film for it. Yes, absolutely. Uh, You know, after COVID, uh, there was obviously during COVID, people weren't going to theatres. And then when it opened, a lot of uh, movies crashed because during COVID, you know, people simply weren't going to theatres. Then after COVID also, uh, there was all there was what is known as the boycott culture. You had people like, you know, like he's talking about Hindu outfits, uh, complaining about a particular uh, film or some other particular segment would say, let's boycott this film. So there was this there were these boycott calls. And the films were flopping, but I really don't think they were flopping due to the boycott calls. Because you know, if that had ha- if that was true, then you would have had even uh, Patan uh, mm. probably uh, falling by the wayside. I because think there, there was a lot that, of calls for boycotts of this film, wasn't there? Yes, exactly. So I think uh, I, I think what was happening is that uh, the you know the audiences simply weren't coming back to the theaters. They weren't attracted uh, by the themes or the content. And they were certainly, uh, you know, as uh, has been pointed out, uh, attracted to the new 
uh, wave of South Indian films, which is certainly a positive. There's no negative in that, I think, because it's all one Indian film industry. But the the uh, <coughs> Bollywood, which is located in Mumbai, which is, as you rightly pointed out, the largest film industry in terms of uh, uh, in terms of uh, revenue and uh, in terms of financial gains, in terms of employment, is very important. So the uh, the return of Pathan has been a shot in the arm for the, uh, the film industry based in Mumbai. And also, I think it's certainly given a, uh, given a reality check to politicians who think they can uh, control uh, these kind of things, uh, you know, uh, impose some kind of religious, uh, you know, uh, boycott or something like that. I think, uh, uh, by the way, uh, now what's happened is that leading uh, uh, leaders, political leaders are now saying that, you know, we should avoid any comments. I think even Narendra Modi, even the PM said that we should avoid any comments on films and things like that. That is not uh, our domain. Mm. Uh, I think also uh, we must remember that the Indian film industry, uh, right from the time of independence, has had a very secular approach. You've had film stars who were Muslim, you had, uh, you had film stars who were Jewish, you had film stars who were Christian. And uh, and the whole tenor of Indian films has been to bring about uh, a sort of a, a non uh, uh, a non uh, let's say uh, communal approach uh, to life. Everywhere you will see Hindus, Muslims, Christians together. And of course, there's the famous film Amar mm-hmm. Akbar Anthony, the you know Hindu, Muslim, and Christian. And Shah Rukh Khan in his latest press conference said, you know. I am, uh, Deepika is Abar because she's Hindu. I'm Akbar because I'm Muslim. And Anthony is uh, John Abraham. So we are Amar Akbar. <laughs> yeah, I really, I did enjoy that. And I, I did, so, I must admit, I'm a big fan of Amar Akbar. I'm a, Akbar Anthony, the, the yeah. old Amitabh Bachchan film, which is one of my favorites. Um, Alison, have you gone back to the cinema? I mean, this is not a specific India problem. A lot of people are quite happy now sitting at home, having their popcorn and just streaming movies on their big TVs. You know, yeah, I saw the Banshees of Insurance in a theater. It was the first time I'd been in a movie theater for a long time. That's largely because everything starts streaming right away. There's no, you know, motivation to go to the theater and spend money, although I, I do miss it. Did you enjoy getting back in there? There's something, there's something nice about a big popcorn. Yeah, contain, and it's the only time I, I eat it, it, and it's delicious. So, you know, I think, you know, hopefully I'll do it more this year. It's expensive, though, isn't it? It's a lot more expensive to go and sit in the cinema, so... I think there is a group of people, Alison, who've said, forget it, I'm just going to stay at home now. Yeah, I mean, I think unless it's a big movie event. Yeah, I mean, I think as well. Before, you'd have to wait months before you could see things at home. And now, like, it seems like a couple of weeks after they're released, they're streaming. Shushma, how many films have you seen in the cinema in the past 12 months? Uh, oh, yeah, the past 12 months, maybe one or two. I don't think, I think I've just been sitting at home and watching on right. Netflix or, you know. <laughs> We're going to have to get you back, both of you, into the cinema, I think, a little bit more. Shushma, thanks so much for joining us on the programme. Alison, as well, we've covered a lot of big economic topics there. Well, Business Report 1530, that will be telling you about what happened in the Indian budget. If you listen to the 22.30, you will find out what has happened with the interest rates. That's happening a little bit later in the day. Jerome Powell will address that press conference then. So listen to both programmes. You'll get the news on those big economic events in different times on both of them. More stories. 
I've only known chaos and conflict. The war was actively going on when I was growing up. And more African voices. If you take away a man's identity, you take away somebody's own self-esteem. The Comb is back. This is The Comb. Neither Comb. The Comb. Shining a light on the stories that matter from across the African continent. Each week we dive into a single topic and explore the story further, speaking to the people who are living it. You wake up and you hear the announcement that the camp must close. You see that your life is very uncertain. They told me that the people who worship the local gods, they are meant to go to hellfire. I didn't understand what I was feeling. I didn't know what I was going through. That's The Comb from the BBC World Service. The Comb. Find it wherever you get your BBC podcasts.